what has kind of blown my mind over the last few years is how in the hell did I say with my mouth and believe with my head that I was serving a loving God. And yet (laughs) the things that I thought this God was doing to me to make me holy or to make me whatever were atrocious. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Season 3. I'm your host, Gary Allen Taylor. I hope you have enjoyed this year as we've done our best to amplify marginalized voices. Marginalized individuals within the faith community bring different perspectives than those of us who are privileged, allowing all of us to see a larger story. And today's guest reminds me that when I find myself at the center of the conversation, odds are I'm not listening to the voices on the periphery. If you're like me and you grew up in evangelical spaces, there was one perspective, there was one story, there was one way of believing, one way of seeing. But listening to marginalized voices allows all of us to unpack that singular story and to grow into a larger one. Not only does it decrease spiritual exclusion, but it allows room for constructive and subversive ideas to flourish, hopefully changing all of us. And our guest today lives out these attributes and practices in her daily life, centering black and brown voices, uplifting black authors financially, and shining a light on systems of injustice and oppression. And she's just a wonderful human being. So you might know her as White Girl Learning on Twitter, but I am excited today to talk with Marla Taviano. Marla Taviano is into books, love, justice, globes, anti-racism, blue, gray rainbows, and poems. She reads and writes for a living, wears her heart on her t-shirts, and is on a mission quest journey to live wholeheartedly, which is not a typo. She's the author of Unbelieve, Poems on the Journey to Becoming a Heretic and Jaded, a Poetic Reckoning with White Evangelical Christian Indoctrination. Marla lives in South Carolina with her four freaking awesome kids. And you can find more about her at MarlaTaviano.com. So Marla, we've been talking off air. Um, We have a lot in common. It's really great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Gary. I am really excited about this conversation. I am too. And, And just for our listeners, we were connected by someone who loves you and your work and who's also a, a Holy Heretics follower. So kind of funny. So shout out for making that connection. Marla, I'm curious, what's not in your bio that you wish more folks knew about you? Okay, that is a <laughs> I love that question. Um, I put a lot of weird things in my bio. Um, so I'm going to say going thrifting with my oldest daughter is one of the greatest joys of my life and something that I really missed when I lived in Cambodia for five years. Mm. Um, I mostly look for books and people are always shocked at the books that I find here in South Carolina. 
I also am shocked. I don't understand the magic, but it is what it is. And I also look for just unique um, statues, figurines, things to put on my bookshelf, things that are obviously were part of someone's life and meant something to them. And I don't know. I'm just very drawn to those kinds of things, especially when they cost $1.94 <laughs> instead <laughs> of what they might have cost originally. So yeah, that's um, I should have put thrifting in my bio. You know, I can still change that. I might do that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we'll, we'll edit that in. No worries. Um, <laughs> now, we talked a little bit off air about the fact we both came from pretty fundamentalist evangelical backgrounds. But do you mind sharing just a little bit more about your faith journey and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. But I'm going to take a quick detour because I recently listened to your episode on the podcast with the Barbara Brown Taylor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and dude. I, okay, I I never re-listened to podcast episodes. This one I may have to to listen to again. And I just want to say quickly that I share your absolute adoration and love for her. And just a couple weeks ago, I got to meet her in real life. It was a dream come true. She was at a writing conference in Atlanta. Long story short, I went only to hang out with my friend Naya to meet my publisher who lives in Michigan and to meet Barbara Brown Taylor. And it was a very That's small cool. conference. I got to talk to her. I got to show her all the things that I had written in the margins of one of her books. I got to give her my two books and she said she would read them and I about fell over. <laughs> um, and I got to record my friend Naya finger snapping to a Lizzo song with, with Barbara Brown Taylor. So that was like That's dream cool. highlight of my life. And I loved the episode you did with her. And I could tell how much it meant to you. And um, yeah, so that was really cool. Okay, my faith journey is what you asked me about. And yeah, there are, I could go into all kinds of things. I could make it long, I could make it short. I'm, I will just say that I grew up in a very um, white, conservative, evangelical Christian home. And I never would have used any of those labels because Christian was what I thought that that I was. I was the right kind of Christian, and all the other Christians were not the right kind of Christian. And um, I want to say it was a very, well, I, it was, it was a very loving home. It was loving. Um, my parents were loving to me and my three siblings. They were loving to our neighbors. At one point, my dad drove a school bus around the neighborhood to pick up all the kids whose parents didn't go to church and brought them to church and then taught children's church. And there was just so much love. And I kind of equated that love with, with Christianity. So I don't have some of the horror stories that some of my other um, ex-evangelical friends have because I, I didn't grow up like that. It was later on that I realized that even in that loving home, so many of those views were toxic. Um, mm. Our politics were toxic and, and, and so much of that. So I went on, I lived in a very small town, um, very white town, graduated co-valedictorian of my class with 70 other people, went on to go to a um, very conservative evangelical Christian college in the middle of a cornfield. And then um, from there, yeah, just kept being super zealous 
in, in my Christian faith. And it was, it was based in love. I really wanted people not to go to hell. I wanted them Mm -hmm. to go to heaven with me. And I knew that they had to believe exactly the way I believed and they had to pray this exact prayer. And that was how they were going to get to go to heaven. Um, So for a long, long time, that was my whole life. Everything revolved around helping people stay out of hell. (laughs) And it wasn't until um, I'm looking back through old journals right now. I have 62 of them um, spanning 20 years. And I, I usually say that my deconstruction started around 2009 or 10. Um, But looking back, I'm seeing hints actually in 2006, seven, eight Hmm. questions that I was asking but what, what generally happened is I believed that questions equaled doubt and that doubt was not good. So when I had the questions, even though I was a very smart person, I would remind myself, no, this is, this is bad. You need to be a good Christian. You need to have faith. Even if something doesn't make sense, you have to trust God and have faith. So I would squash those questions and doubts until I didn't. And I credit Rachel Held Evans um, with being the person that gave mm, me mm-hmm. permission to start asking questions. She was so much like me. And we both went to a public school and told all our friends about Jesus. We <laughs> believed the same things. And when I started reading her book, which was originally called Evolving in Monkey Town, she, um, she was bringing up some things that terrified me. And I stopped reading it for a while. And then I realized, wait a second. She's not some outsider who's out to get Christianity. This this is her life and her world. And if she's being brave enough to ask these questions, then I want to be brave too. Mm. And it really did just change everything. And from there, it was a um, yeah, a slippery slope down to where I'm at now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you bring up something that's really important that I don't think any of us knew when we were in evangelicalism is that we were groomed to turn our brains off. We were groomed to see the world in, in binaries, us versus them. And we were groomed to basically uh, not be able to take in new information, that if there was anything right. from academia or from from another corner of Christianity that threatened or questioned our certainty. And, and those certainties were the base level, like the most fundamentalist elementary view of, of life, of anthropology, of sexuality, of science, then we were told to reject that, that those people right. were coming for us. They were attacking us. And, yeah, I, I remember uh, being the same way. I was in I, – I went to Milligan University, a Christian liberal arts school, and for the most part, it was it was fairly open and, and inquisitive. And we took a capstone course as seniors that everyone was required to take. It was from a Duke Divinity professor, uh, well, Duke Divinity PhD, and he was, at least in that time in the early 90s, to me, like this radical – communist leftist. And (laughs) I remember being so confused because I looked at him and I knew he was a devoutly Christian man who was a scholar, who was, you know, intelligent. And yet his beliefs about Christianity and about life were completely different than mine. And I remember first just revolting against that. You know, this guy's a heretic. Um, We're going to fight against him. He doesn't need to be teaching at our good little white conservative Christian (laughs) school. And it was only literally about 
15 years later that the seeds he planted in my life began to harvest, did I begin to actually uh, go to him and, and call him up and be like, hey, remember me? Yeah, remember the little asshole in the back who was like so, <laughs> so conservative Republican and yeah. pushed back on oh. everything that you told me? Um, I now have questions. I am now ready to engage in 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 the things that you introduced me to. So it is kind of funny how we all get here, but but I do believe it starts with the ability to be courageous enough to say, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my community is wrong. Yeah. And and maybe I've been protected from reality. So I don't yeah. know. It, did you feel that as well? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I I have had to go back to people and say, um, I'm sorry. And now I understand what you said. Yeah, I, right. Sorry for the fighting. And people have come to me also. I had someone when we moved back to the States in 2020, she reached out. It was right after George Floyd was murdered. And she said, I don't know if you remember me. I unfriended you on Facebook four years ago because <laughs> I didn't like what you were saying about racism. And mm -hmm. now I'm sorry. And can we mm -hmm. be friends again? I was like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome yep. back. <laughs> right. Yep. I've had that too. I had a college um, acquaintance who got on my Facebook page about three years ago and she goes, well, I never would have thought Gary Allen Taylor would be talking to me about inclusivity and LGBT things and, you know, all the justice centered things, but here we are. And I'm like, okay, well, I think that's a compliment, but you don't, you're not really making me feel good. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, anyways. Yeah. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about your book Jaded because I've been reading it this week and one it's it's really fascinating from a stylistic perspective and I want to get there but uh, maybe to start you describe Jaded in your words as a poetic reckoning with white evangelical indoctrination. So maybe let's start there. What do those words mean to you? Well, like I said, when I back in the day when I thought I was just a Christian, um, it took a while for me to realize as I started the, my quote unquote deconstruction journey, I um, I realized over time that it was a very white space. The deconstruction space is mm. is still um, yeah, a very 100%. a very white space. And um, it wasn't until I began like this anti-racism journey. We helped a black friend start a multi-ethnic church in 2010. Um, I, I made more friends who were black and started reading black authors and then started reading some black Christian authors and realizing that my particular brand of Christianity had a lot of um, labels to go with it and mm. white being one of them evangelical. Um, and when I, I don't know what my label is right now. When people ask me, are you a Christian? Are you not a Christian? I, it, my answer differs. It varies <laughs> day to day. Um, but what I realized was if I do throw Christianity out I can only throw out my very specific version of Christianity, mm. and that is white evangelical Christianity. And I'm reading black womanist scholars who are writing about the Bible. I haven't really read the Bible in, I would say, six or seven years after reading it through many, many, many times. I read the Bible straight through, I think, the first time when I was eight or nine, mm. um, and I never stopped until 2017. <laughs> um, but 
reading them and their perspective on the Bible made me realize, oh, you know what? I actually do love the Bible. And now I, I, I still think I could hold on to some of this stuff, reading mm-hmm. it through this lens um, mm-hmm. instead of the one that I always read it through. So instead of throwing out the Bible, throwing out Christianity, exploring what other people have long believed about the Bible and, and about Christianity. Like I said earlier, I, I knew there were all these versions of Christianity. I just knew mine was the one right one. Right. And now I, I'm learning from all these people um, who are saying different things that actually make a lot of sense. And, and I'm realizing how many things I push to the side um, that were in the Bible that would have brought up cognitive dissonance, but instead I just thought, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to listen to that, or I'm not going to read that part, or I'm not going to talk right. about that. Um, and so, so yeah, when I wrote Jaded, which is a follow up to um, my first book, Unbelieve, um, I wanted to make it very clear what I was disowning, and that was white evangelical Christianity. Mm. Um, because unbelief is actually, um, it's pretty white as far as the authors that I quote and what I was learning. I do talk some about an anti-racism journey and white supremacy, but it wasn't until a little bit later on my journey that I really started um, waking up to white supremacy and realizing how entangled it is with white evangelical Christianity um, and learning the truth of history and learning that um, Christians were complicit in so much harm and in slavery and lynching and now mass incarceration and police brutality and all of this stuff. Christianity is right there in it and often leading the charge. Yep. And so so in, in Jaded, there is I mean, there's a section on white supremacy. There's a section on colonization. I quote tons of black authors write poems to my black friends. Um, and I have a, an, an Instagram account called white girl learning where I've read for the past five years, I've read and been reviewed books exclusively by, by black indigenous and authors of color. And I just learned so much. And my world has just expanded in a huge way. And I owe that to people who are not white. So mm. Yeah. So yeah, that's the it, long answer of my <laughs> for why my subtitle is is what it is. Isn't it fascinating how our privilege blinds us one to other voices and other perspectives, as well as just the suffering and oppression that we we benefit from, we participate in, and we continue to be you know complicit in. Um, I, I think that's one of the greatest things that I have been finally awakened to as a white male is that I am a part of a system and I still am a part of that system that, that was made exclusively for my benefit at the exclusion of, of everyone else and taking yeah. a long, hard look at that privilege and trying to figure out now, what do I do? You know, when I enter into a space as a white male, um, what's my posture? How do I t- talk about things? How do I decenter right. myself? And it, it's very difficult because we've been told, well, both of us, white or you know, white male or or female, but I mean, the male yeah. is at the top. Let's be honest. Um, right. 
we've been centered our whole lives. And so it's our view and then you are hyphenated around us um, and just you know, taking the time to begin to shed that could take could take a lifetime. So mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about your book from a stylistic perspective. I, I mentioned it a, a little bit earlier, but for those who will pick up your book post this episode, how would you describe it and then prepare your reader for what they are about to participate in? Because it's not like opening up uh, a novel and reading it. It's it's different. It hits the page different. It hits your eyes different. There's a rhythm to it. Can you explain that a little bit and then talk to us about why you chose that stylistic delivery for, for Jaded? Yeah, well, I didn't choose it. It chose me. And I still don't know how it happened. <laughs> but um, how to describe it? I will say that people hearing that it is poetry, um, unfortunately, is a little bit of a turnoff to some people because they they imagine poetry as something kind of obscure, abstract, that they might not really understand. And they want something that's more straightforward and more clear. And so I can't really, um, I can't combat that out in the world. I can do it on podcasts or on my social media and try to explain or share the poems, but it's, it's not abstract and it's not obscure. It's very, very straightforward and to the point, so much to the point that it, it started out as prose and it was getting so long and so boring. And so <laughs> how do I t- tell this story when everything keeps changing and things that I wrote two years ago, I can't even stomach reading anymore. Mm. And I think part of what happened was that I realized that in this day and age, we are fighting for people's attention. Um, people's attention spans are shorter. My attention span is shorter, even though I read I read about 250 books a year, and mm. not just poetry, but big ones also. Um, but trying to figure out how to set myself apart from all the other deconstruction memoirs that are uh, that are out there, and it just happened. I just took bits and pieces from that prose. I carved, I carved things away, kind of like I imagine a sculptor taking a big block of marble and carving away everything that's not going to be the the statue. And Mm -hmm. I just carved away everything that I didn't need. And then I started putting it in little stanzas. And um, it just turned into this, people have called it chunky poetry, unconventional poetry, prose poetry, Um, Some say that it reads kind of like some of them are like tweets or even Facebook posts, Mm. which technically they are. (laughs) I got some of this (laughs) from that. Um, But it's it's meant to grab your attention, keep your attention, leave some things out that um, that might give you room to put your experience in or to add your imagination. One of my favorite things that happens is when people will say to me, wow, I love what you did with this poem where you took this this word here and this here and you made this connection. And this is all brand new information to me. Like I did not know that I did that with my poem. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Barbara Brown Taylor, when I was listening to that episode with her and she said something about how authors don't know 
what their books meant until right. they go on until book they tour go on and everybody tour, tells yeah. them. <laughs> right. I, I love that. Yeah. I'm not on a book tour, but that's what happens to me in my DMs. People come in or they share my poems online and they say, look what she did here. And this is amazing. And I sometimes I'll say, well, I can't take credit for that because I didn't even realize that. Sometimes I will just smile <laughs> and say, mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, it really like, it was a choice that I made that turned out to be one of the best things I've ever done because mm. the response that I'm getting and the way that people are relating to it. And then, like I said, during the pandemic and so much has happened and a lot of people have come to me and said, I don't know how you still read. I can't even read a whole book. And then mm. some of these same people are saying, Oh, but I can, I can read this. I can read your, your poetry. Um, none of the poems are more than, than a page long. And some of them are like six words. So it's just, um, yeah, it just really happened in some kind of magical way. Like they talk about Mm -hmm. the muse or all of that. I, I don't know. I really don't know how it happened (laughs) and I'm so glad that it did. (laughs) Well, let me read one of your poems and, uh, one to introduce this to, future readers of the book, but also I want to hear your response to it. This is worthless. And so I will read it in my voice. I'm sure uh, you will, you would have read it and wrote it in a different voice, but here's my interpretation (laughs) and I want to get your response to it. So this is worthless. I didn't make it two pages before I realized just how much toxic shit I believed. I thought I was a wretch that God was punishing me, keeping us poor So we'd be forced to rely on him. I was too needy, too selfish, undeserving, not a good soldier, absolute trash without God. When you hear me read your poem back to you, what do you feel? Um, What does that bring up? And what did those words maybe mean to you then? and, And what do they mean to you now? Well, you read it just like I would have read it. Um, yeah, that that God does not sound like a very nice God <laughs> to me. And what has kind of blown my mind over the last few years is how in the hell did I say with my mouth and believe with my head that I was serving a loving God and yet... the things that I thought this God was doing to me to make me holy or to make me whatever um, were atrocious. Like I, I just, I don't know how I justified that in my mind. Um, And I just opened up to the, to the poem. I found it. It's funny because people will say, Oh, your poem on this page or where this poem, I don't know where any of my poems are. It's, it's, (laughs) I need to like study my book. Um, But backing up two pages. So that's on page 39 and on page 37, the poem is called maybe you were never saved. And I talk about how people are saying, so you walked away from God. Maybe you never had a personal relationship with them after all. And I say, um, tell that to my 62 journals where I wrote to the Lord with intense fervor and passion. I go on because I did that for 20 plus years. So I think I was pretty serious about my relationship with God. And then the next poem is called Bleeding Heart. And it starts, 
opening my journals feels like reopening old wounds, both the ones inflicted on me and the ones I caused. And then I talk about how some people burn their journals. For me, I've decided that I need to do a deep dive. I want to know what's in there. I want to know what I believed. I want to find the me that I am now in those in those pages. And I am finding her. I'm only on journal number eight. This is going to take a while. Mm. Um, but not only do I have 62 journals, I have four books that I published that were a very conservative Christian evangelical indoctrination. It was me being indoctrinated yeah. and then indoctrinating other people. And so I, yeah, back to the poem worthless. That's really what it was. Like I, I thought I was a lowly wretched worm that I was nothing without God. Everything I did um, that was any good at all. God got all the praise for that. And anything bad was all on me um, because I was a, a sinner. And waking up to how toxic that is and realizing that what, what happened is not only did I internalize that for myself, but then I looked at other people like that. When it says in the Bible, love your neighbor as yourself, the way I loved myself was calling myself a wretched, worthless person. And so that's how I was loving my neighbor, quote unquote, loving my neighbor was thinking about them in that same way. You are terrible, horrible sinner on your way to hell, unless you repent and ask Jesus in your heart, and then you can go to heaven. So for my Muslim neighbor or my gay neighbor or my trans neighbor, um, it was even worse because there were things that I saw as part of their identity that went against everything that I believed to be holy and, and right. And so there's a lot of personal healing that I have to do. And then also a lot of reparations that I have to, to make. And I'm, I'm not just wallowing in that all the time and feeling sad and, and regretful, but I am moving forward and also addressing those things in the past and making things right as I go, which is what I think we need to do as a society when it comes to racism and white supremacy. We can't just start over in 2023 and say, well, let's just forget all that. And from now on, we're not going to be racist. Not right. when our whole entire country was built on genocide of indigenous peoples and Africans being enslaved and and it just is a continual line from then to now. And we can't wash that away. We can't um, erase it because it's affecting real lives, real people who live today. So we have to go back and and make that right. I mean, we can't obviously literally go back, but we can um, we can correct some of those things and pay people back and give land mm-hmm. back and. And um, it's overwhelming, but what other choice do we have? Like when we're talking about privilege as white men, as white women, um, we have so much privilege and why not use the rest of our lives um, using that privilege to lift up people on the margins? Mm, I love that. 
So we are just recording this days after the latest mass shooting in Nashville at Covenant School. And I guarantee you that between now and the time we publish this, there will be another one. There, there, there will be. Um, and this week I have been absolutely raging externally, internally, um, as it relates to a myriad of different different things. One, living in a, in a nation where we could give a shit about kids, uh, living in a nation that worships guns, living in a nation where 50 million people are in a cult following one of the most narcissistic, craven criminals that has ever run for office. And then underneath that, we have um, an entire movement of evangelical Christians that are supporting it, that are gun apologists, that are turning a blind eye toward uh, children being massacred in schools and Jewish people being massacred in synagogues and people being massacred in shopping malls. And I don't really know what to do with that anger because it is leading me to just be bitter about the entire superstructure, about being an American, about being a Christian, about living in a culture that is so demonic on on, on so many different levels. And yet your book talks about bitterness, And you say that you are taking bitterness back. Um, For someone who is struggling with bitterness myself, can you help me take bitterness back? And and what what do you mean by that? Oh, wow. Yeah, to everything you said. (laughs) Um, I don't don't know what Mm. I... What I do know, the, the poem that you're referring to, I believe, is a is a poem where I'm talking about um, the the story that goes along with it is back in the day when I was dating my ex husband, his grandmother um, gave me this gift. <laughs> it was like this watercolor print that you could put a photo in. It said Marla, which is my name, and then under it is like the definition of the name. You get it like at a county fair or something where you yeah, can find yeah, your yeah, name. Yeah. And my name is is um, pretty unique. I don't always have much luck finding things with my name on it, but she found one. So she was so excited to give it to me, but it said Marla really big. And then under it, it said bitter (laughs) because my name, (laughs) like the name Marla is derived from Mara, which means bitter. And there's a verse in the Bible, um, Naomi and Ruth, where Naomi's name, um, she, after she loses her husband and her sons, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because it's <laughs> because I'm bitter. And I was like, oh, well, this is very convenient now that, that my name actually means bitter. And look at all this bitterness that I have. Um, I, I am trying to use this bitterness and anger as fuel to fuel um, good things in my life and in the world, love and equality and fairness and beauty and celebrating people for who they are um, and who they want to be and how they want to be seen. And I think that it's, it's impossible to deconstruct from white evangelical Christianity without going through a very, um, well, I don't know how long it is. It depends, uh, but a period of anger and bitterness and, and rage. 
And what happened as I was writing, so Unbelieve, my first book is, um, it, it goes through and it's talking a lot about my early days of deconstruction. And then I end kind of on a, on a, a note like, oh, I haven't, I don't know where I've landed. I haven't landed anywhere. I'm just flying, la la la. And the next book, mm-hmm. my, my plan that I, I sat down to write this book was going to move on past white evangelical Christianity into this new, freeing, expansive, beautiful world. And as I sat down to write it, what you just said, um, more school shootings, more police brutality, more laws that have been fought for over the years so people could have equality were getting like reversed. And all of this shit was just piling on and I could not do it. I couldn't move into that expansiveness. I had too much bitterness and anger inside of me um, that needed to be let out. And so that's what jaded is. The whole entire thing is not bitterness and anger, but a lot of it is. And a lot Mm. of it is getting it off my chest. I've had people come to me just in the past few weeks and say, you seem really calm. Like, how are you calm right now? The the world is on fire. And I, I can't always control how I'm going to feel at any given time. But I do know that constant anger, bitterness and rage is not sustainable um, right. for my own personal health. I, I can't do it. And I don't always want to be fighting against something. I do want to be fighting for things, but it's not as simple as that. It's not a binary. It's not, um, it it just doesn't work out that way. So what I've found is that I can fight for love and equality and beauty. Um, But that involves also fighting against other things and just, sharing honestly from, from where I am, but it is definitely a calmer place overall. Mm. Um, but I still cry when I hear news, I still get angry. I still have no idea what to do with the fact that people hold assault rifles in front of their Christmas tree. Um, And then those same assault rifles go into a school and obliterate nine-year-old bodies. Like, I just, I can't wrap my mind around it. And it seems so big and so evil. And Christians are, it's the Christians. I mean, not every, not every assault rifle owner is a Christian, but a whole hell of a lot of them are. And when things feel too, too big, Um, I just kind of go down to the small things that I can do like today on, on Instagram this morning, I, I've been posting things in my stories about, about the, the victims, the shooting, different things, but I hadn't really figured out what I wanted to say. And so I just posted some photos of some flowers. Um, Mm -hmm. I live in South Carolina, there's spring flowers everywhere. I took these photos on a walk with my daughter And I said something to the effect of, I love flowers and I hate guns, especially assault rifles. And I hate racism and I hate homophobia and I hate transphobia and I hate this and I hate that. And I went through all the things that I hate. Mm -hmm. And then I said, and I've committed my life to 
fighting for the things I just said, love and equality and um, human rights for everyone and dignity. And that's, I, I guess, to answer your question, you've got to go through it. Um, there is an, there's another side, you get to another side, but it's never as simple as that. It's not a linear journey. Um, and I can't save these kids' lives by posting photos of flowers. I know that. Um, but if I can influence people through through my words, um, like I have a sub stack and I just do one poem every Thursday. And yesterday's poem was just, it was pulled from Jaded and it was called Guns Are Greater Than Kids, like with the greater than symbol. That's the, yep. that's the poem. And I just posted this simple poem and then got a bunch of people responding. And I have found sometimes that the less I say, um, the more impact it has. Because believe me, I, I can I can share 1200 words <laughs> about how angry I am about, about these things. Um, but sometimes it's just best to share one photo, one photo, one poem, a few words, and do what I can to change minds and hearts. And, and I have a unique ability, not unique that no one else has it, but um, like you have it also is I can speak to these white evangelical Christians because I was one. Right. Um, so when people come to me and say, well, you're not listening to anybody else's point of view. And I'm like, sweetheart, I held your exact views for 40 years. Yeah. Like and now, I I and literally now I live this, right? And and so I educated myself. Yeah, exactly. So I have not only read all of your books, I mm -hmm. wrote some of those books. You're right. Yeah, yeah. And now everything that I am learning is from the other perspective. And that's all I ever need to learn now. I don't mm -hmm. need to read a single other book from a white evangelical Christian. I have read thousands. I've been reading since I was four years old. I read 250 right. books a year. So you can miss me with, <laughs> you're not listening to the other side. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, so, so yeah, I don't have answers, but I really truly have committed my life to, to fighting this. And I want to live a long life and I want to be able to do it for many, many, many years. And I know that means I can't stand on my soapbox and rant um, for long periods of time because yeah. I have to stay healthy. Um, I have to be in good headspace, heart space. And so that's what works for me. But mm trying to get rid of the bitterness or the rage or the anger that doesn't work. And I talk specifically in jaded that the black women get a bad rap for being angry, an angry black woman trope and white women have some reasons to be angry and black women have 500 more reasons to be angry. And so um, some of my anger is on behalf of other people. Yeah. And that is a very righteous anger. Yes. And, and I think that's something that I am awakening to that, you know, when I look at all the, the things that I just mentioned that you just talked about, they really don't affect me um, right. in a personal level. And I find myself being angry on behalf of others and realizing that, 
I'm not sure how to do that or what to do because I do feel guilty. I feel guilty that all of these things are still happening to the other, still happening to the marginalized, still happening to people that don't have the power to change them. And so my rage is a rage with and for other individuals. And I feel like if I, if I feel like if I shut up, then I'm complicit, then I'm just another quiet, white, privileged person who can't be bothered with the pain and suffering of others. And so to me, that is where the tension is for me, because I, I do realize that, that bitterness and rage and, and yelling against the machine is not sustainable. And yet when I become quiet and just act like everything's fine, then I feel guilty because now my, my quiet is complicit. And, and I don't really know what to do with that. Uh, I'm, I'm still kind of processing that. And I also know that there are things happening in my heart. I I still have just a vitriolic response to – I live in Colorado Springs, um, mm. used to work at Focus on the Family. I am surrounded – I I fucking swim in white evangelicalism. I mean, they're mm. my neighbors. They're my friends. They're It's everywhere. I go to the gym. I pass by, focus on the family. I can't escape it. And even just talking about it is so triggering. And yet on the flip side, I'm, I'm fairly protected from it because I don't like, yeah, you guys are idiots. Like, but you're hurting people, you know? And so right. just managing that tension of, if I stay here, I am going to become as angry and as cruel and as vindictive as they are only toward them. And I've got to heal. I've got to move past. And yet I also don't ever want to lose that that anger. I had a friend of mine text me the other day after you know Nashville shooting and I was putting some stuff on Facebook. He said, why are you so angry all the time? And I responded back and I said, well, why the f- aren't you? Yeah. And, you know, nothing. Right. Because, mm-hmm. and and I mean, I mean, I'm I'm getting angry right now, and yeah. and I do understand that there is righteous anger, and yet I also know that it could potentially kill me because I don't really know how to flush it through, and then use it as fuel for what you just said for pointing the world toward goodness, justice, love, mercy, beauty. Because I don't think that arguing is ever going to work. Like we're never going to convince the gun apologist or the hardcore yeah. reformed patriarchal white Theo bro that they're wrong, right? That we're just yeah. – and, and I think that maybe that's where love becomes transcendent is, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to figure out a way to love you, a uh, person on the internet, person on Facebook, person in my life that is a MAGA Christian, and maybe, like just maybe in that space of love, that the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, does something to transform that heart. Because I, I'm I'm trying to answer my question here. I, I don't think that com- <laughs> being, com- you know, I don't think that being combative with them is ever going to transform anybody's heart. I think meeting evil with love and maybe even suffering love is the only way to do it. But I mean, gosh, I don't know how to do that yet. So, 
Yeah, I have a couple pieces of advice. And I generally, as a general rule, do not give out advice. <laughs> like my <laughs> friends will call me and talk about their problems or whatever. And at the end, I'm like, well, I am just really glad that I gave you so much helpful advice. And it's sarcastic <laughs> because I gave no helpful advice. And sometimes yeah. we don't need helpful advice. We just need someone mm. to listen. But as you were talking, and what do I do as a white man and not centering myself? And the first thing that comes to mind is sharing um, sharing other people's words and their voices and their books, which is what I do on my, my white girl, white girl mm. learning Instagram. And then that's not centering you because you are, you are pointing people to say a black woman. I know that mm. you've had people on your podcast, like Christina Cleveland, who I love Um and her book, God is a Black Woman, so good. By having her on and, and allowing her to share then with your listeners, with your audience of people who might not have known about her before, that's a big deal. Like that's one mm -hmm. very big way that you can um, center other voices, let them speak for themselves. Don't try to speak for them. Um, share their words, share a quote from their book, share their book, get people to buy their book. Um, and the other thing I will say is I read this recently. I've seen, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but um, someone was talking about like, don't, don't call yourself an ally. Let other people call you that. But they went on to say that an ally is someone who stands in front of someone who's getting rocks thrown at them. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't getting bruised and bloody, then you're not an ally. Like, if, if nothing is happening to you and you're making no sacrifices and like when you were talking about how you feel safe in your town and I'm not telling you that you need to, <laughs> I'm not prescribing anything that you need to do. And that's, but everybody, it's a personal thing, but I have lost some things. Like my sister disowned me because of things I said about racism and standing up for the queer community um, I have lost friendships. I have lost other things um, because of the stand that I took. And so I tell people that sometimes people who say, well, I'm, I am affirming in real life, but I'm not going to put that on social media because I don't, I'm not ready for what's going to come at me. Right. And I just try to say, you know what? <laughs> I Coward. mean, then you're probably, yeah. And again, I, I don't say every single thing that I feel and think and whatever, but at some point you just have to, to ask yourself, am I really standing with these people? If, if yeah, nothing if is not happening hurting. to me, if right. I'm fine and they're still hurting, then I'm not getting in the way of those rocks. I'm right. like off to the side, holding their hand while people throw the rocks at them. And yeah. that just doesn't cut it. Right. No, it's funny you say that because I, I'm wrestling with that too. Like I didn't speak to my parents for about six months because of all of this. You know, we've lost some of our dearest friends over the last 25 years who literally live yeah. a stone's throw from our house who we don't talk to anymore because we are uh, LGBTQ inclusive. And, you know, so many of I see some of the people I used to work with uh, out in the community and they give me that sort of your dangerous look. We're going to smile at you, but please don't come and talk uh, to us. 
And, yeah. you know, it, it is interesting that when I, you know, so when I say I'm, I'm protected, I mean, I'm protected from the, the literal assaults that are happening, right, but, but you right. are correct. Like when you begin to align yourself with the marginalized, you are going to get, um, and I don't want to oversay this too, because I'm like, oh, see, now I'm centering my, my, you know, you're, I'm centering yeah, my yeah. privilege again, but it is right. true. Like mm-hmm. if it's not costing you anything, if you haven't lost friends or family or people just think you are absolutely wacko, yeah, you probably haven't done, done enough. And, you know, growing up in, in evangelicalism, you know, I was told, oh, you're going to be per- persecuted by your faith. I had no idea <laughs> that the only persecution I would ever receive would be from the church herself, yep. you know, and yep. that's been something really fascinating to, you know, kind of wrap, wrap your mind around. Yeah, it is unbelievable. Everything they said about everybody else. <laughs> right, I was like, right. oh, you were projecting. I get it. Yeah. Like, oh, that's what you're going to do to me if I ever question. Uh-huh. Well, Marla, this has been really uh, an incredible conversation. I knew it would be. It's also been kind of heavy. Would you mind if we ended with uh, just some quick rapid fire, more fun, get to know you questions? Because we went really deep. I got really woo, emotional. You, I feel like <laughs> I'm just, I feel like you were my therapist. You just kind of helped me work through yeah. some stuff. You need um, to calm down, Gary. Let's I know, calm you down. I know. Right, exactly. <laughs> Gosh, was I really that bad? I hope not. I was. I no, hope, I I'm kidding. Really right. <laughs> so, uh, if if you don't mind, let's just end with more of a get to know you questions, uh, and then we'll move move on. So, I'm going to say I don't mind. I don't know what you're going to ask. Though, I know, so maybe right? I will exactly. Mind. We'll see. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. All right. So, first softball fun get to know you. What's the best meal you ever had? Oh my goodness. Um, I am going to say khao soi, which is a chicken dish that I had in Chiang Mai, Thailand, that mm-hmm. was the most, yeah, the most delicious thing that I've ever eaten. I love Thai food. I love Khmer food, Cambodian food. That's what Khmer means. My son-in-law mm-hmm. is Khmer. He lives with me and makes me delicious food anytime I want it. So, but khao soi, I, I can't, it's, it's beautiful. You lived in Cambodia for a while. What's the one thing you miss most about it? Oh, besides the beautiful people, I am going to say the fresh tropical fruit that grew on trees all around me. (laughs) And if I wanted to buy it, um, it was plucked off a tree and and given to me for pennies, basically, Mm -hmm. sometimes for free. And... I got it in fruit shakes and it came with our meals and it was just delicious. And trying to buy it here is not the same. It's very expensive. It's not as fresh. Um, And so, yeah, I really miss tropical fruit hanging on the trees. (laughs) Mm. What TV show are you watching right now? Ted Lasso. Me too. Funny. I, (laughs) I don't. I don't typically watch much TV at all. Um, I read books most of the time, listen to podcasts some of the time, and watch TV just a little bit of the time. Um, but I was a late—I was late to Ted Lasso. I think I started watching the first season when the second season had come. I had just started, and then got completely hooked. Watched it with my kids, and now we watch each 
Wednesday when it comes out. And yep. holy shit, this season. <laughs> oh my I was gosh. On Twitter, I was on Twitter last night. Um, and I won't give spoilers for people, but I saw on Twitter hashtag Zava. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I need to, I need to check this out. And I probably spent 40 minutes looking at everybody's takes on Zava and the season so far. And I was like, oh, talk about you don't know what things are until people tell you. Yeah. All these connections, all these scenes. I was like, this is the most brilliant show i've ever, <laughs> ever watched in my life so yeah ted lasso I, I was the same way i i literally will refuse to watch anything that the masses are watching because <laughs> yeah. i just like no if, if everyone likes it it must be stupid and, and sometimes I, that's not true right <laughs> no totally not true we started yeah. watching ted lasso i think in february like literally like this February. So crazy. Oh my goodness. Crazy late adopter. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, all the we're all in now. I've got my daughter yeah. watching it now. Yeah. It's just <laughs> it's it's just incredible. So okay. Last question. We could talk about Ted. Maybe we should have you on and just again and talk about Ted Lasso. That'd be kind of Hey, funny. I'm, um, I'm, I did it. I did a um, Shit's Creek episode with one of my friends. We just talked about Shit's Creek, another show yeah. that I, that I watched. So I would love to be on to talk about Ted Lasso. So anytime. Now switching to movies, have you seen the Banshees of Inishirin? I have not. And I don't get out to many movies. Is this a new movie? It is new, but I think it only released on Amazon Prime or some streaming service. It's with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who who starred together in in Bruges, which is another one of my favorite shows, movies. Um, this film is a lot like Ted Lasso, but yes, yet on the other end of the spectrum, so many layers, so many things to unpack, so many just what the fudge just happened. I don't know what this means. I have to go talk with someone <laughs> who's smarter than me. Yeah. Uh, if yeah. you get two hours, watch the Banshees of Inisherin. It's it's fantastic. It reminds me of Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, have you seen that? Yeah. I have not seen it yet, but I'm going to. It's on my list. Yep. Okay. That's one of those you're like, okay, my mind is blown. What just happened? But Yeah. yeah. Nice. All right. Last question uh, as we wrap up. What gives you hope? <sighs> okay. Well, flowers give me hope. Every uh, every spring, here they come again after everything looks dead. I specifically have orchids. I bought an orchid um, for myself when my ex-husband left. And it was my first flower. And I set it on my bookshelf and watered it. And it died. And I thought it was over. And then I, it just sat there for a while. And then a few months later, little buds came again. So in the last three years, it has looked dead and bloomed again, probably, I want to say four or five times. And I've since then added to my orchid collection. So flowers are one thing. Another thing recently that, that happened that gave me hope out in the world is that as part of my white girl learning Instagram, during Black History Month in February, I did what I called the Black Writers Fund. And I, um, 10 of my Black friends who are all writers, and a couple of them have self-published books. One has a book deal, and the others are all aspiring authors. I decided to 
see how much money I could raise. And I set a goal of $5,000 so I could give them each 500. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea was just buy them some writing time. Because when you talk about privilege and luxury, um, how, when you write a book, believe me, I I know this, that you, (laughs) you don't get paid for a long time. And then unless you're really lucky, you don't get paid much at all. Um, and so I just wanted to give them some space, some time. And we raised $5,000 in under a week. And it was, I, I don't know the exact figures, but I would say 97% of the people who gave were white people. And I framed it as kind of a giving back, a micro reparations, um, loving our black friends. And people gave and they told me stories and they told me this money was going to be used for this, but I want to give it here. And I just felt so much hope for the world, even though it was just this tiny corner um, of the internet and a tiny group of people. Um, But it made a really big difference. And so we're going to continue it and do some things. I might start a nonprofit. I don't, I don't know what it's going to look like, but that just, yeah, it just filled me with a ton of hope mm. for humanity, for white people, <laughs> yeah. um, that we can put our money where our mouth is and we can, and we can make, we can make a real difference. I love that. That's something that I've been trying to educate our listeners and, and our uh, friends that if you want these conversations to continue, then you have to help us um, carving out the time to create uh, paying yeah. for paying for the platforms and the distribution, because that, that is one thing that evangelical Christians have done really well over the last 50 years is they put their money where their mouth is. And that's why oh, they, yeah, they do. You know, it's, it's why focus <laughs> on the family has a hundred million dollar oh annual um, mm. budget. And it's why, you know, Holy Heretics has $300 a month. Right. And so, it's just an opportunity for all of us to wake up and go, here are some voices um, that speak to me and that are bringing beauty and hope into the world. If I don't join them, they will go away and yeah. they will be they will be drowned out by dominator yeah. Christianity. So, mm-hmm. yeah, support the people that are changing the world. Otherwise, they, us, you, me, we, we, we go away and, yeah. and you know. It's just not not good. So, Marla, um, thank you so much for joining us. I, as I said, I knew this would be an incredible conversation. It's been a thrill uh, for people who want to learn more about you to grab your books. Where can they find you online? Um, I have a website, MarlaTaviano.com. It needs some updating. I hang out most often on Instagram at MarlaTaviano and Twitter at MarlaTaviano. And then also at White Girl Learning on Instagram and my books, um, Jaded was actually, I self-published Unbelieve and Jaded was picked up by a publisher, Lake Drive Books and the lakedrivebooks.com website. You can find Jaded there. And then we're actually re-releasing Unbelieve in a couple months mm. through Lake Drive with some new um, added things. It'll be have a new cover. Um, I'm pretty excited about that. And then my third book um is coming along very nicely and it will either come out at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Wonderful. Well, what I love about uh, this show and about the incredible guests we have is 
I never really know where the show is going to go, but we always seem to go (laughs) where we were supposed to go. And I think that just happened today. So thanks so much. It's been an honor. I I look forward to continuing this conversation and continuing the friendship with you. Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content, and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.